0: Today we're going to be talking about climate change solutions. So I thought it was only fair that I take one on myself. I'm going to take a cold shower right now. Heating water uses energy. Energy from a cold power plant releases carbon dioxide into the air. And uh, hopefully this cold shower using no hot water will reduce my carbon footprint for the day. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's a short shower. Woo! You're listening to Funny Atmosphere, episode two. We'll examine all sorts of climate change solutions, some of them ridiculous and some of them practical. And we'll look at some efforts to adapt to climate change as we visit the Phytotron. It's a science facility at North Carolina State University where scientists study how to improve crops. If I went in there, I would die.
1: You would. The good thing is you wouldn't fit.
0: So we're stuck with climate change. And we have two problems to deal with. We have to stop climate change from getting worse. And we have to adapt to all the stuff that climate change is doing now. That's rising sea levels, weather extremes, and food supply issues. Wow, that's a lot of work. I already dropped my kids off at two different preschools in the morning. I can't handle much more than the double drop-off. How can we make this easy? I need one action that takes care of everything. I got it. Hmm. You know, maybe it's time for humanity to leave the earth. A friend once told me, If the idea of ending a relationship feels like the world is being lifted from your shoulders, then it's a good thing. And leaving the planet will literally feel like the earth is being lifted from our shoulders. Paul Byrne, planetary geologist, where can we go? Uh, We could try and live on Mars, we could live in lava tubes on the Moon, we could try somehow to terraform Venus. It would be easier to draw down the atmosphere on Venus, and it would not be easy, but it would be easier to do that on Venus than to introduce more atmosphere pressure to Mars. Byrne mentioned the phrase terraforming. That means artificially making a planet hospitable to human life. Making the atmosphere breathable, maybe adding some water, some trees, a couple nice rugs, free Wi-Fi, an affordable smoothie shop. The essentials. The one thing we were learning straight off the bat is that there is no meaningful planet B. I think it would be easier to fix Earth. It would probably be perhaps 10 or 100 times easier to fix Earth before we go terraforming someplace else. So we're stuck on this planet. Let's move on. Let's move on to the next science fiction trope, time travel. There's lots of physics papers out there that try to work out the math. Justin Bauman,
2: coral reef ecologist, what year would you leap back to? In the 60s, 70s, 80s, I think we really, we, people knew, started to know. And at that point, maybe even in the 60s, I'd go back to then because that's where we had the movement where we, we had the Clean Air Act, we had the Clean Water Act. We really cleaned our stuff up and we started realizing we were causing these problems. Yeah,
0: and... I'd go back to the 60s for other reasons, but...
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's the same ideas that are the reason that I think that's the time to go back to because there was already a movement for this kind of thing.
0: So, I'm on the internet right now, looking to see who's building a time machine and can take Bauman back to the 60s. I, no, okay, okay, I can't find anybody. But Bauman's got me thinking. If we can't go back to the 60s, could we bring the 60s back to us? While droughts from climate change threaten wine crops, maybe marijuana might be able to thrive in drier conditions. Here's Kat Chamberlain, a PhD student at Harvard University, talking about cannabis the marijuana plant.
3: From what I have heard anecdotally, it seems to be a very resilient crop. People are growing it in Alaska, which Alaska has the shortest growing season, you know, in the U.S. Um, So it's a really tough environment to try and grow something. So people have found ways to grow cannabis, you know, anywhere.
0: Could we move from a wine culture to a pot culture? And will that make everyone more
2: with it and down on really embracing the earth, man? Oh, man, that is a really fun question. I don't know. That's kind of like saying everybody should, like, take shrooms and then we'll figure it out. I don't, I don't know. Like I'm game. <laughs> it could help. It could help. It could hurt. It could
0: definitely hurt. A doctor recommended I smoke marijuana for an issue I had with my eyes. I tried it for a month. I got really paranoid, fell in love with a box of donuts, and couldn't stop listening to the air conditioner. So, let's look at the climate change solution checklist. We're crossing off, moving to another planet. We're crossing off time travel, and we're crossing off everyone's smoking pot. Although, that last one has the highest chance of happening. The highest chance. Hello? Is this thing on? If it's too much work to reduce fossil fuel emissions, there are a few more creative approaches. If you Google climate change geoengineering, that's climate change geoengineering you'll see all sorts of hacks scientists are working on. Some people want to add stuff to the ocean so that it absorbs more carbon dioxide. Some people want to pump particles in the atmosphere that will reflect heat from the sun. This happens somewhat naturally when a volcano erupts. All these things sound like dealing with climate change by using gimmicks, which is essentially my approach to this podcast.
2: Yeah, yeah. yes. Simply put, people are trying to goof with the cycles and try to exploit Things like the ability of the ocean to take up CO2. And that would be bad. I'm glad people are looking for innovative solutions. Really, the problem is the global scale of things. Like, we could put as much whatever into the ocean as we want. Um, first of all, that's gonna be bad because more CO2 means more acid, more acidic oceans, which means like, you know, less oxygen, less fish, less everything. Bad. Overall, bad. Geoengineering the atmosphere would do something similar. We can't like put a shade 10 up around the earth. Um, as much as we would love to do that. The, the thing that we can do is we can reduce our carbon emissions. And maybe we can even capture some of that CO2 and put it underground in a place where it's no longer interacting with the, with the atmosphere. Or we can, I don't know, somehow get it out of our atmosphere. But that is a gray area, very gray area. But reducing our emissions is the number one most proven way to do the thing. That's what we need to do. We have to stop.
0: We have to stop putting carbon dioxide in the air. We just have to stop but for the past 200 years, that's who we are. That's what we do. It's like trying to convince someone to quit smoking. And that's not a metaphor. A tad cliche, not very well written, but appropriate. Jason West at UNC Chapel Hill studies climate change, air pollution, and public health.
4: I'm interested in air pollutants, so contaminants in the atmosphere. Some of them are greenhouse gases. Some of them are air pollutants when, where if we breathe them, they cause damage to our health or they might damage uh, the environment through things like acid rain. And some things actually affect both climate and air pollution. and that to me is interesting. A suite of actions that would get us pretty far toward addressing climate change could save something like half a million lives every year globally in 2030, over 2 million lives a year in 2100. And when we look at the mon- put a dollar sign associated with those life saves, it was greater than the cost of the actions that we're taking in, in the first place. And you could say, you know, it, it benefits the climate today, but really it's slowing down to the rate of change over the next several decades, right? Um, so it's a long-term problem. When we talk about air pollution, though, and the air pollution co-benefits, that really does affect the U.S. We see the benefits of that in our own backyard for our own health now.
0: Reducing CO2 from cars and power plants can improve our health. This is called a
4: co-benefit. Co-benefit, exactly. I, I try to stay away from technical terms.
0: But it's a good technical term, co-benefit. It's like when you walk to work instead of driving. Not only are you not adding CO2 to the air, you're getting some exercise, and everyone will know how fit you are because of the pit stains on your work shirt. There are many, many, many ways to reduce carbon emissions and reduce the amount of CO2 we release into the air. We have the technology, solar power, wind power, tidal power, which uses energy from ocean waves, geothermal power, which is something I don't understand, and nuclear energy. Wait, how did nuclear energy get on here? I thought that stuff was a disaster. Well, it turns out nuclear energy has no greenhouse gas emissions. It also satisfies our urge to constantly be on the edge of ecological collapse. So maybe nuclear energy is the way to go. Nuclear energy creates energy by using radioactive material to heat up water. That steam is used to generate electricity. Coal plants use a similar process. Coal is burned to heat water. The steam makes electricity. Burning coal gives us carbon dioxide. Nuclear power gives us Chernobyl, Three Mile Island in Fukushima, but no greenhouse gases. I tried to get a tour of a nuclear power plant, (laughs) no luck there, but I found the next best thing, someone who's worked inside one. Katie Mulvaney is a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill, where she studies the health impacts of climate policy. Mulvaney says she's not an expert in nuclear power, but she's worked in a nuclear power plant. We started our conversation talking about calculus.
3: I know a lot of math, yes.
0: And how much she's used it in her work so with calculus i think of the paint can that can, can't can hold enough paint to cover it and calculating areas of curves using rectangles
3: yep <laughs> could, that's part of it
0: could i be a nuclear engineer
3: um well depends on how much calculus you've done <laughs> that's it that's all i know <laughs> all then right. and
0: a couple spy problems uh,
3: the cool thing about the nuclear industry is You don't just, there's not just nuclear engineers that work in it. Um, You need lots of different people from lots of different fields of science and math. And so, for example, I was a mechanical and civil engineer and really don't know that much at all about the core itself, where, like, the nuclear fuel is.
0: But you've been inside plants?
3: I have, yes. I worked at one over a summer when I was still an undergrad for three months.
0: I asked Mulvaney if she could describe what it was like inside
3: Yeah, sure.
0: When she says that, it's like having a friend who works at a movie theater pop open the exit door so he can sneak in for free.
3: There's a lot of pumps and pipes and valves um, and there are different parts of the plant that are more restricted than others because of the radioactive, the radioactivity um, that might be happening inside different areas. So you have one side of the plant which is where the electricity is actually generated and that is not so restricted. There's really not much radioactivity there at all. And then you have the other side of the plant where you have the water circulating that's actually touching the core. And that... Um, I was only once allowed inside of. (laughs) So you have to take a lot of precautions when you're going into those spaces. Everything is labeled nicely and kind of organized inside and and very, very clean. You really can't see much. There's a lot of doors inside of doors inside of doors. Um, And it's kind of like a maze on the inside to be completely honest.
0: What are the sounds?
3: You might hear like the hissing of steam as it's running through the pipes. But of course, you know, there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no seam breaks normally.
0: Mulvaney describes some of her work.
3: I did a lot of different calculations for different systems in the plant that ensured that the plant was safe and to make sure it would be safe far into the future as well.
0: And everybody seemed healthy. They had just two, two arms and two legs.
3: <laughs> yes. Nobody with three
0: eyes. <laughs>
3: Nobody with three eyes that I knew of. <laughs>
0: I asked Mulvaney if she thinks society will use nuclear energy to reduce carbon emissions.
3: I think it's, it's a tough question. I started my career in the nuclear industry right after the Fukushima accident happened. Right before that, there was kind of a renaissance happening in the nuclear industry. And if you had asked me that question back then around the 2010-2011 time frame, I would have said absolutely, like nuclear energy is going to grow all over the world. But after watching what happened after Fukushima, and also around the same time the cost of natural gas was dropping. It's it's had a negative impact on the nuclear industry and so I'm not sure I'm not so sure. I think a lot of people are afraid of it honestly and it's kind of a decision that we'll have to make as a society like do we want to put a lot of resources into this or not.
0: Before leaving Mulvaney clarifies one misconception about nuclear power.
3: Sure. (laughs) So if you've seen uh, those those kind of curve-shaped structures outside of a nuclear power plant. As like you're, on The Simpsons? Yes, exactly, like on The Simpsons. <laughs> a lot of people think that that is nuclear waste coming out of the clouds in, uh, in those structures, but it's actually just steam. It's just water vapor. Um, the nuclear waste is secured between, behind like, lots and lots of concrete, and you would never see it.
0: <laughs> but there's more to climate change than just the energy issue. We're going to have to live with the effects of climate change for a while that means we're going to have to adapt to extreme weather that affects crops our food supply to see how scientists might be adapting crops i traveled to north carolina state university to visit the phytotron and i must say for a science facility the phytotron has style and you, you've kept the the 60s decor
1: table is original the credenda's are we we've, re- we've replaced the chairs yeah and we keep polishing the walls my name is carol saravits and i am the director of a facility on nc state's campus called the phytotron
0: and that, that's how you pronounce it phytotron
1: yes so phyto being plant tron being instrument
0: it, it almost sounds like a uh, a dance club sound do you ever have parties here
1: no we don't and we are not the only phytotron and so we have about about 60 growth chambers. And we have five greenhouses, although we've taken one of our greenhouses and we've made it part of a biosafety level three lab where we could work with plant diseases or insects that aren't here in the country.
0: Serovitz was generous enough to give me a 90 minute tour of the facility.
1: And now if you want to enter through the men's locker room, I will just meet you on the other side.
0: Okay, great. It's a nice locker room. We got everything here toilets, lockers, doors, and here we go. First, we start with the growth chambers. The growth chambers are big metal boxes with refrigerator-like doors. In the growth chamber, scientists can control a plant's environment, light, humidity, even CO2.
1: See, and out here, you can see a lot of times we'll do disease studies in these smaller chambers.
0: And, and um, the gases, the CO2, and, and basically air is pumped in through these vents?
1: Yes, thanks.
0: Yeah, 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 this looks good. This is very old school, there's lots of knobs and. And switches you flick, and and lights.
1: But the switches last forever.
0: One advantage to these growth chambers is that a season can be mimicked, as opposed to out in the field where the weather might be too wet or too dry.
1: And it's the same day-to-day-to-day. So you don't have a warm summer or a cool summer. You have a phytotron summer, which is whatever you want. Sounds like a
0: good name of a band, Phytotron Phytotron Summer. summer. (laughs) Next, Saravitz tells me about some experiments with drought-resistant grass.
1: They're looking at even different chemicals that you could apply to the grass that's already there because people aren't going to replace golf courses, but that you could apply to them that wouldn't hurt the environment and at the same time would prevent water loss so you could water the grass less.
0: Golf will survive climate change.
1: Well, uh, it's going to survive. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have anything that we can do to stop it.
0: <laughs> okay. Max Saravitz shows me one plant that might really take off soon.
1: And This is a plant, Camelina, okay. and this group is interested in developing biofuels. So they're looking for something that um, is drought resistant. They're trying to get it so that the oil has a good composition for making something like jet fuel.
0: We step into the lab.
1: The end, now that is a piece of equipment that they use, it's called a gene gun, where they actually shoot the genetic material on little balls into the, the plant tissue.
0: Then we head upstairs.
1: And the one over here is a biosafety level three greenhouse, the one inside, so you can grow plants with diseases that aren't here in the country in the greenhouse. And all of the plant material that's grown in there comes out the autoclave. What's an autoclave? So an autoclave is a way that you can sterilize things.
0: Wow. So what I'm looking at, it looks like a giant, almost like a, like a cross between a bank vault and an yeah. industrial <laughs> oven. If I went in there, I would die.
1: You would. <laughs> the good thing is you wouldn't fit. And not that you're big, but we, it's that size where it's not really for humans. It's, it's just for, for mainly plant material. They, they, yeah. Yeah.
0: Could you do the dishes in here? if You <laughs>
1: You could. You could. <laughs>
0: These diseases you're studying, are are there more diseases because of uh, climate change?
1: Well, what you worry about is some diseases getting worse. You know, as you have longer, hotter summers, maybe something like powdery mildew uh, will start earlier.
0: All through the tour, Sarovitz highlights how the Phytotron reuses a lot of its materials, from the original growth chambers to the freight elevator.
1: And even it's been renovated. Oh, wow. The box is still original.
0: Down in the basement, Saravet shows me an experiment she's working on.
1: Simulate what it would be like to grow the plants in a greenhouse, and we're developing solar films that would collect energy. So you can kind of make a self-sufficient greenhouse.
0: In the Phytotron, light is very important.
1: These lights are ceramic metal halides. You can get about 900 micromoles of light, which is about half what the sun is.
0: Wow, it's so bright in here, but this is like half of what it is
1: when
3: I go outside?
0: Exactly, yeah. Wow. Wow, indeed. There are so many ways of dealing with climate change, from alternative energy sources to being able to live with the changes to our environments. We have the science, lots of technology. We can save golf. What could possibly stop us? Next episode, politics.